And I said, I never use net zero because uh, I don't, I just don't find a use for it in talking about a circular economy. Yeah, we know carbon's a big deal, but it's not the only, not the only ship in the ocean. Kiora, I'm Troy, here as CEO, and welcome to Stirring the Pot. Thanks for connecting. If you're new, here's what you can expect. We're going to be talking the tough stuff, the things that keep us metalheads up at night. There are many challenges facing our industry and equally many opinions on how we should tackle them. Stirring the Pot provides a facilitated forum to discuss and challenge these viewpoints. So let's get to the nuts and bolts of it. Today we're talking with Ken Webster, who is an expert in circular construction and a visiting fellow at the University of Auckland. We've been lucky enough to steal some of his time to chat about his intersection between the circular economy and construction whilst he is visiting Aotearoa, New Zealand. Uh, So Ken, let us know a bit more about um, circular economy and circular design in relation to construction. Well, that's a big topic to to leap into, but... um in a way, it's not too difficult. Circular economy has grown in interest because it really offers a different perspective. Now, the different perspective is is maintaining capital, maintaining stocks, whereas our take, make and dispose economy is about degrading natural and social capital or even manufactured capital. So that's quite a different uh, perspective and it requires feedback loops. In other words, everything has to be food for the system. Otherwise, you can't maintain the stocks. And the reason it has to be food and why the analogy or the metaphor of uh, a nutrient economy often comes up is it has to be digestible. You know, it has to be suitable to fit back in the system. Now, that's a, a fairly simple way of describing it, but look what that would mean for construction. Uh, at the moment, we have... Um, it'd be no surprise to you, the phenomenal amount of waste uh, and uh, the impact on uh, climate change in terms of emissions, about 45% are related to materials of all sorts. And within that, construction is a very high proportion. And in a way, somebody will say, well, we might be able to urban mine. You know, we can take this waste and mine it for something good. But the problem with mining is, as in real mining, is that the stuff is contaminated. It's very expensive and energy expensive to do something with it. So circular economy and construction says, actually, by design and intention at the beginning, we create this nutrient loop, this, uh, this connect, these connections. And so we design for disassembly. We design for the next cycle. We make sure they're monomaterials as far as possible so that you know what you've got. And knowing what you've got ties into this... Uh, Uh, work on materials passports, which underpins the whole thing. So from a simple statement that, oh, we need to close the loop, we need to close the loop by intention and design. Now, recycling, which is often confused with the circular economy, is really the last stage of a linear economy. It's, oh, my goodness, we've made all this. What are we going to do with it? (laughs) It's low value. It's contaminated. Well, somebody's got a, you know, there's a legacy problem there. But inherent in designing for the complete cycle means that um, almost everything has to change in terms of activities on construction sites, ambitions, whether you maintain uh, the building yourself. Maybe you don't sell it anymore. You build to build to run it and then disassemble it and then transform it into another building. These are very exciting uh, prospects, but very, very challenging. Yet, 
What other choice is there? Mm-hmm. And definitely in Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, it's a very nascent um, area of research, let alone practice. Um, what, where do you see this as being the most mature in terms of consideration? What, where, where are the areas of best practice for circular economy and construction? In construction, I was going to say in other areas, it is things like construction equipment, large-scale equipment. People are now providing, say, drill bits as a service. They're not selling them. They're, there have always been sophisticated approaches to refurbishing large kit, large plant objects, if you like. Those have always been uh, dealt with somewhat differently. The key is to find things which enable you to maintain the value. If you can keep an object, a component, a material in its highest value, you've got a clue as to where to go. So who's winning out in this? Well, the difficulty is that the institutions and the tax systems, they don't allow us to tell the real price for materials, products, components. And so a linear economy, hey, it's always a winner. It's somebody else's problem. I've built it. I've sold it. Not my problem. So as long as prices are not telling the truth and as long as there aren't uh, enforceable guidelines about what buildings we would prefer because we are planning for a long-term sustainable and uh, an economy uh, which features well-being rather than um, degradation, mm-hmm. it's, hard to get it, it's hard to get it rolling. The inspiration at the moment are lots of projects around the world which are pointing the way. You know, you've got your first 12,000 square meter commercial building built to be disassembled. It's built there, it's in Holland, it's the Triodos Bank, and it's fully designed for the next cycle. It's based on a 40-year lifespan, and things will then be returned to other uses very cleanly. And uh, yes, mostly wood, as you might imagine. But the inspiration of that is that it can be done It provides fantastic working environments. The workers there love being in the building. And it it blends really well with the landscape because they did a lot of prefabrication. So you didn't have a lot as much Mm on-site disturbance. You could make that low. They could build it in a very short order in terms of getting the things built. So it's, um, it's full of possibilities. And at the moment, it's more an enthusiast game Mm-hmm. than the standard game. But that's always the case with change in human economics. People stand up, try it, and then as the world changes, uh, they, they, the rest join in. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the point I just want to get across, is that it's, context brings meaning, right? So the context at the moment doesn't say go circular, but with climate change, with potential shortages of materials, with shortages of labor, Thinking a different way and creating, instead of urban mines, materials depots, buildings are a, a place to store carbon mm-hmm. as well. You know, they're not only useful materials, but it essentially, if you choose the right materials, it can be a store of carbon. Yeah. So these things coming together will shift the debate mm-hmm. and shift the uh, activity. Walter Stahl, one of the great writers in this area, said that um, when, when asked about the business uh, opportunities, he says, well, survival in business is not mandatory. 
you know, there's no obligation on anybody to say this business must survive, even though it's running a, a 19th century or early 20th century building system. You know, get with the program mm -hmm. might be the thing. You know, if you want the new contracts, and that's another thing that's coming up, eco-design directives, Europe's full of it. Europe's got this uh, circular economy action plan, and it's impossible to ignore the strictures within that. So it's a coming game in my my view, and that's what makes it exciting because lots of different players can get in and make something of it themselves, working around quite a few distinct core principles. If they get that mindset shift, the rest is not easy, but it's a, a question of digging in. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting the example you gave about the drill bits. Um, it's really fundamentally more a business model innovation, a, a mm. disruption to the business model, which I think is what is often the challenge because, for example, in the steel industry, when we start talking about circular economy, um, there's kind of less business available for steel manufacturers mm. or steel fabricators, yeah. for example. And the business model would need to change around, you know, looking at opportunities of do, is the model actually that you rent a piece of structure or do you buy it back at the end of yeah. life and repurpose it? It seems with to be that fabrication. It seems to be that one of the first things businesses have to do is to decide what business they are in. Now, I've talked to a mining company. Uh, I can't say about what exactly, but their question was: Can we be part of the whole materials cycle? And the same discussing about steel there. Are you just making steel and selling it? Or are you providing the service that steel is very good at mm. offering? Mm. And if you are, how does your business model change and what new competencies and skills will you need? And I think that's very interesting. It's, it, it's one of the hardest things to do is to say, well, what business am I in? You know, with the drill bits example, it's about maintaining the quality of the drill bits, delivering it on demand, recovering it, reworking it, and putting it back. And that changes how you deal with how you source those original components for your drill bit. And it's a very different set of incentives, too, for, for instance, the sales force. Before, you might be incentivized on how many bits you sold. Now, how are you going to incentivize them if you're not selling the bits, Yes. but you're selling the service? Yes, and I think that's why it's really important that circular economy is really discussed in relation to construction 4.0, the application of industry for to construction mm -hmm. um, because again that data and that business model change around the data and how what information you know about your product and how it's used mm -hmm. becomes really important um you mentioned um that building in holland um how advanced is the use of um, material passports um the architect in charge of doing the triodos building is a chap called thomas rao who i know quite well because I'm on the supervisory uh, board of the Madasta Foundation, which is a materials passport organization. I'm part of the charitable bit. Uh, Madasta Services arranges all the contracts with its clients. So it's significant that Thomas Rao, the architect, is also a director of Madasta Services, mm -hmm. which are materials passport people. And of course, every, you know, I'd attempted to swear, but everything in that building is is noted, logged, tracked, discoverable, even to how many screws they use, because they didn't use glues, they used something over 1.6 million screws. 
but they know that that is how many screws they used. And so the data underlying these things, it's going to be a chain of, not so much a chain of supply chain anymore, it's going to be a chain of responsibility. And people have to figure out ways to share the information without confidentiality problems. You know, that's one of the things that's coming up. How do we do that? Mm -hmm. But the digital, well, I'm obviously, um, I'm biased because I like what Modasta does. But I think I've always recognized that the, the backbone to all this is data. And, and for another reason too, because we're moving towards potentially, and I mentioned this in the book that I did with uh, Felix and Dirk, uh, is that we might be entering an era where there will be fee dividends. Now, this is carbon fee and dividend. In other words, you would need to know the carbon content. You need to know the origin of what, what you've got. And there would be a fee charged on that, and that would be redirected to everybody potentially as a universal basic dividend so that we can have equitable, we can help prices tell the truth, but the poor don't lose out. So the data element, ignore the politics for the moment, but the data element is key, isn't it? You have to be able to say, what it is you're moving across borders and what's in it. Mm -hmm. And the same with this creating food for the system. We need to know what uh, is in our material banks, not in our urban mine waste heaps. Mm -hmm. We have had a lot of um, difficulty being able to explain the concept of material passports to people within New Zealand. How would you describe a material passport? How would you describe a materials passport? It's To me, it's almost being able to understand what you have, where it came from, and, and it logs the idea that this is whatever building you've put it in is a temporary store for these bits and pieces, and that this enables you to say, oh, we could use this next. It also has got a role for architects, designers, uh, quantitative, uh, quantity surveyors, be able to say, say in Amsterdam, well, we guess this much uh, stuff is going to come out of the system over the next three or four years because our data predicts this, which helps with sourcing or, or decisions around architecture and delivery. So you can't do it without knowing what you've got, where it is, what quality it is, and who made it. Uh, really, how can you do that if you're going into a circular economy without, oh, you just you accept a delivery of stuff like they do now. Mate. Oh, we've got this steel. Well, what's in it? Uh, a classic one was in 1999, Michael Braungart, the German chemist, um, was analyzing the, res the aftermath of the um, earthquake in Istanbul. And he found that much of the steel that had shattered was contaminated with copper. And they didn't know that. And you know, you, you're the experts at it, copper makes steel more brittle. So you don't want that going on. If you're going to use recovered materials, what's in it? Mm -hmm. You prove it, you can't sell it, you can't move it around unless you can prove it. So I would say it's almost like the normal passport. You can't visit New Zealand unless you've got your data up to up to scratch and it's on your phone with the NZETA or whatever it is, depending yeah. where you come from. Mm. So it's an essential to a circular economy. You don't won't do that without a materials passport. Mm -hmm. I, I would argue it's so difficult. But at the moment, you see, so much is so casual in the waste and recovery business. It's on, you know, this is the, the part of the problem too. It's a lot of it's still informal. Well, it depends. I'm not speaking for New Zealand, but from where I come from in the UK, there's still a lot of trouble around informal waste deals. Yep. 
Yeah, I think um, also a problem, um, at least in New Zealand, is that um, there's very much a big focus on module A carbon. So mm. um, those modules subsequent, or maybe module B a bit more, uh, but definitely module C and D mm. don't get the attention that they deserve. There's not a lot of data to support calculations based on those modules. Um, is that something that's changing in Europe? I would say world, well, my impression, put it that way, worldwide is that there is such a focus on carbon. It's almost ridiculous. It's almost like a laser vision on carbon. That's the only thing that really matters. No, it isn't. We know that. And in a way, it's somewhat of a distraction because somebody asked me the other day, what's the relationship between net zero ambitions and the circular economy? And I said, I never use net zero because uh, I don't, I just don't find a use for it in talking about a circular economy. Yeah, we know carbon's a big deal, but it's not the only, not the only ship in the ocean. So um, I think that's un that's unwarranted to be so focused on uh, just on carbon. It's about systemic design, and that means thinking like a system, you know, thinking in systemic ways, mm -hmm. uh, not to get distracted by just one thing. Oh, we've got to fix the carbon. Mm -hmm. It's the same with LCAs. Actually, LCAs are more a cradle to grave thing rather than a cradle to cradle. Uh, platform. So you have to be careful about making a judgment on an LCA on something that's designed for many cycles. Mm. It can be done, but it, it's not everyday practice. Mm. Yep, and the system boundary is yeah. really important. Well, well, that's it? right, because you can't tie them in very tightly with a circular economy approach because it might easily slip over the boundary into other cycles, which mm. is fine because that's food. You know, it's a bit like you got to feed the forest to feed the trees, is the old adage. No, it is about nutrients, not about making something fit your accounting principles, if you, if you follow my uh, drift there, because that usually means too tight a boundary. Yeah, it's convenient, it's accurate, but would you rather be uh, precisely wrong or approximately right? And I, I found that quote very stimulating in a way. I'd rather be approximately right, mm -hmm. because I'm orientated more towards systems. Yep. Um, it's interesting that all of, all, you know, all of the concept of circular economy makes total sense. What is it that is the impediment to widespread adoption of this thinking? Is it capability? Is it technology? Is it data? What is Well, what you, is you, you can probably guess I'm going to say everything. <laughs> you know, let's get the whole, because it's a systemic thing. Uh, and I would say that the top barriers to it are, Price is not telling the truth because if you had prices reflecting the real cost of materials, people are going to get busy on preserving the value, recovering it at high value, because it's a great business driver. So prices will have to tell the truth, I would say. And a lot of active business uh, entrepreneurship will follow. You know, they're great at working within the system boundaries. So you tweak the system boundaries and they get busy. You know, you don't have to overburden it with, regulation in in detail you know uh, i would i would say that's not the best thing the other thing is getting the mindset over you know we grow up thinking in silos we grow up thinking detail first and um if you like circular economy is a a detail dropping exercise you're trying to get a picture you're trying to tell a story about how the system works uh, and and that means you lose some of the details in telling that story. And many people, professionals, of course, are very worried about that. 
oh, uh, it's a bit like my own work. I'm more of a generalist. And even in universities and uh, academic things, that's a very difficult thing to be. Well, what do you specialize in? Well, circular economy, but usually in a macro sense, usually on the systems level, which makes some people think, well, I don't know why he's here if he's only able to talk about the macro one. Where's all the detail? You know, if I was specializing in LCAs or something, oh, well, that's a niche. Mm-hmm. You know, we can, get, we can get Kenneth to do this LCA stuff. I, I, you know, I want to talk about the link between the monetary economy and circular economy materials. And they go, I don't know where that fits. Mm. <laughs> so I think it's similar with uh, building and construction and design. One thing I will say, though, designers have to stop thinking the job stops. At the moment, it's usually let's source the materials, let's assemble it, uh, and then wave goodbye to it. But what about the occupation phase? Uh, isn't that something to do with the original designer? Maybe there should be some cross-incentivization. What about the d- disassembly? What about the transformation of those materials? So the thinking has to start with answering the question Bill McDonough, a pretty famous architect, said, which was, um, can you answer the question, what's next for your building? Mm-hmm. And if you can't answer the question, what's next? You go, oh, well, it's down to the people who bought it. Well, you're not in a circular economy. You're, you're, you just dumped the responsibility off the edge there and, and you can walk away. Mm-hmm. which is fine, that's how it works now, but you don't get a circular economy out of that. Mm, you have I to, you, that you, know, you know, it's great, isn't it? Can you tell me what's next for this building? Mm. Uh, no. <laughs> what's in it? Don't know. Uh, what will we get from demolishing it? Um, don't know what the value is. Thomas Rao, because we mentioned him, he picked up a lot of work uh, at, at a particular job when they asked him to replace a building and organize the demolition as well, you know, just... But he said, what's in this building? I said, well, we don't really know. So do you mind if I take a month or so to just find out what's exactly in it? And he managed to recover a huge amount of value in that demolition process by researching what was there. And then the way it was demolished was done in a way that allowed the recovery of very valuable stuff. So it's a business thing. It's not driven actually by the environment. It's driven by uh, business opportunities. Mm-hmm. It's an economic opportunity driven by innovation, says Walter Stachel, and I, I very largely agree if the system conditions are friendly towards it. Because mm-hmm. you know, I can, business can get onto the job quite well if they know what they're working with. I love that quote, and I think that um, that's an area that we're starting to think about in our research as well with our circular design project, um, which would be very much taking advantage of steel being um, basically the backbone of a building Mm -hmm. and then what can you do leaving that backbone in perpetuity? Mm -hmm. Um, How else can that building function with that backbone remaining? Um, And how how do designers specify um, changes to material um, specs just to extend the lifetime so way beyond what the building code requires? Um, what what can happen if we double, triple it? Yeah, mm. yeah, and also I imagine about making sure that you're very clear that you're using pretty standardised um, girders, for instance, uh, structural stuff, so that people can go, well, this is valuable. We we can transform the building and keep the structure, as you're suggesting, or if we are disassembling it, we've got valuable stuff there. Mm. And Thomas Roud mentioned him for a third time. He did a public building in uh, the Netherlands where it was designed for disassembly and 
the suppliers were involved and they were, as an experiment, they were said, you're going to get your materials back, you know, so what will you rent us, you know, what will you supply us this material for this lifespan, mm. what will you charge? Now, it was an experiment, it got built and everything, but it had a 25-year lifespan. And the major suppliers were going to get their stuff back. Okay, I don't know how many of those firms will still exist in 25 years. But it was a great example of thinking, well, buildings as a service. And I, and I think that's coming along a lot more. In the, in the book I've just been talking about, there's discussions of a, an urban village, which is very much as home as a service with different equity arrangements for, for people occupying buildings. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of experimentation going on in, in rethinking what it is. Can I just run you through one example of how radical it can be? Um, imagine that um, house prices didn't keep going up or property prices didn't keep rising. Hmm. So the capital gain has rather withered away a bit. Uh, imagine that every building you put up can be a power station because it's got solar stuff and it's got advanced heat pumps and stuff, but you supply those as a service. So you're supplying the building uh, not to sell, but to, to rent, and you're supplementing with revenue from energy, from heating and ventilation charges, because you supply all of that. Perhaps even you do contracts with somebody to supply the white goods if it's... a, a whatever and you've got a materials passport so you know that when after your 30 years you want to clear the site because things move on you know what you've got and you can plan your revenue over the period what on earth do you want to sell it for you know particularly if the capital gain has uh, faded away mm. and which is an era we're moving into now we've come to the end of this huge bull run in stocks and assets also there's another more Dr. Evil reason to do it, if I can put it that way. Um, the world runs on asset classes, whether it's stock, shares, whatever. I would probably exclude crypto for now because that seems to be more of a joke than anything. But if it runs on assets, the more you can control important assets like steel, like um, the data for buildings and so on, the more you've got something that you can protect. It's your asset. You're controlling it in a world where it's very volatile. You won't know whether you'll be able to get replacement sources or how long it will take. You know, just think, oh, there's going to be a six-month delay. Well, that's just that's messed up your project pretty much. So controlling assets in, an, in a world where asset prices still dominate sounds like a good idea, but it might be also restricting competition. But then, hey-ho, that's not the question at, at hand at the moment. So controlling assets, managing the flow, and you being your business, being at the heart of this, could be interesting anyway in terms of earning economic rents in the jargon. You can get some extra surplus because you've restricted the market. Yep. Mm. And again, it comes down to that business model innovation, predicting what could be different, how your business could be disrupted. Mm. Um, tell us a bit more about yourself. So you've mentioned that you consider yourself a generalist, but how did you become a specialist in... Um, Circular economy applied to construction. Well, um, my background was, uh, if you like, uh, in education, actually, and trying to share insights about. Uh, I'm originally a macroeconomist by inclination and by uh, my passion. But I got involved in the circular economy because I was very interested in systems thinking. So this is a little way back. And then I helped 
uh, get the Alan MacArthur Foundation, a very big NGO that helped promote circular economy. I set the intellectual structure for their work, which I was very pleased to do because it was a synthesis of ideas that were floating around, cradle to cradle, performance economy and stuff, but tried to make it into a package that was good for business and influence policy. Now, within that, I've always had an interest in data, you know, that materials passport thing. So I got invited by Modasta to be on their board because I was an economist and because I was interested in data and I could tell and share stories, I think, not because I'm a construction person. And that, that did intrigue me, particularly with the amount of waste and material losses generated by construction. But because I seem to be able to frame the big picture quite well, people like the Danish Circular Built Environment Network wanted me to be an advisor. And Felix and uh, Felix invited me to do a presentation for Cornell online it was during COVID, and he liked the way I was sharing ideas. So it's more that I am piggybacking on real professionals in circular economy and construction, but adding in, I think, a flavour of how does this fit with the economics, how does it fit with uh, fiscal policy and stuff like that, which, because they're specialists, they might not be so into. It's a very important sector and I enjoy it. I, you know, this is the thing, I want to convey my enthusiasm for things and if I'm enjoying the, the construction arena as a debate thing, I'll follow that. But I also have big interests in monetary cycles, uh, modern monetary theory and, and things like that. One of my latest books is trying to tie materials and monetary cycles together. So it's not exclusively construction, shall we say. And what has brought you to Aotearoa? Uh, an invite from the University of Auckland uh, to be a fellow for a year. Uh, I was formerly working as a senior lecturer at Exeter University, and there's a strong link between Exeter, Professor Pascucci, and Kenneth Husted in, in this university. And I was delighted to come and support their Circular Economy Business Week, which they have running from today, and to do, to do some other, make other connections like the one here, you know, pick up on invitations. But um, that's how I'm, I'm over here. I also have a fondness for New Zealand because a long, long time ago I had a girlfriend who was a Kiwi and I remember some very nice visits uh, uh, over here. So it's a pleasure always to be in New Zealand. Plus, I think uh, it, it's an interesting and open place for ideas. Uh, I think that's what I find anyway because people are, will entertain them. They might tell you that they don't like them <laughs> fairly straightforwardly. But they'll listen and they'll engage because, well, it's just part of the culture, I think, about uh, about um, being practical people. You know, we'll we'll make it right. We'll fix it. Yeah, she'll be right. Yeah, she'll be all right. That's it. So there you go. Thanks for joining our conversation with Ken today. If you'd like to connect more with him, you'll find his details in the show notes. This was a great conversation, which we really are thankful to have had. Uh, we would like to thank Kenneth Husted from the University of Auckland who helped facilitate this important conversation. For us, circular design is about allowing the construction industry to keep materials in circulation and move towards a regenerative future with practical, innovative, long-lasting and environmentally friendly principles in mind. Food for thought till we see you next time. 
If you liked what you heard today, you may be interested to know more about the sustainability focuses that HERA has and our hopes to foster a circular economy within our heavy engineering and steel industry in Aotearoa. You'll find details in the show notes. 